1: more dramatic or like, sort of understated, or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation
0: suddenly gave way to a run for survival
1: you are listening
0: to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm
1: Yes, hello and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly, all kinds of sorts of bits show. Bushy's my name, I'm back after a couple of weeks away, had a holiday and a dose of the flu. Wonderful to be back and looking across at Adam Grubb. How are you?
2: you, Remember when you used to make an effort with the
1: intros? Yeah, yeah, before my descent into madness, my nihilism (laughs) kicked in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, it hasn't fully kicked in. It's just I've got other things to do, Adam.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I'm
1: exploring. Yeah. I've, I've, jo- I've, I've got this sort of fitness program I've joined. You know there's that old adage, probably quite apt for tonight's show, of a tree falls in the forest. Is there a sound if nobody hears it? So I'm exploring the idea that if you join a CrossFit class and don't tell every single person you meet that you've joined a Cro- CrossFit class, does it have an effect on your <laughs> fitness? <laughs> So, am uh, looking forward to you reporting back. I won't be reporting back. I'm doing a test. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Kate Dundas. <laughs> Hello. How are you? I'm well. I feel like everyone in the room is a stranger. I'm well now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've also been ill. It's gone through, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. What a shit hole. But winter. today was a joyful day. It was. People were smiling at me when I cycle past. That's not happened for ages. No. Because well, there's spring in the air. And I haven't been able to see you through the rain and the fog either. <laughs> True. It's been marvellous. And... Um, Always, always the MVP, the Michael Jordan of the team. Jed on panels and buttons. How are you? I'm well. Welcome back, Bushy. Oh, it's good we, to be back. We missed you. I've been in the. We went on a holiday to the land of the long white pants, <laughs> which is Noosa, South Yarra, North. South like Yarra, North. Right. Oh, down to business. Uh, the idea of reading a book about tree growing on the surface might not capture everybody, but we are going to discuss this evening a book with its author that is part technical manual. It's got collated data and graphs and charts and all sorts of stuff in it, but it's also a people story and a community story, and it's a book that treats history from all perspectives. It is a great exemplar of the old adage that uh, people planting trees who shade they will never enjoy. And tonight we are speaking with its author, scientist, farmer, and forester, senior lecturer at Melbourne Uni for 20 years, and the managing director of the not for profit Australian Agroforestry Foundation, Rowan Reid. Welcome, Rowan. Oh, thank you very much, guys. We have, uh, we've enjoyed your book a great deal and uh, we're very excited to have you here in this studio. Could we kick off? Um, The book is effectively about your uh, life in agroforestry, something that you've kind of redefined using um, another thing I think we'll refer to a lot this this evening, the third wave thinking. But can you define agroforestry for us?
0: Well, certainly I've redefined it if I can. Um,
1: I I call it what I call
0: it. And uh, I think in so many fields, definitions... uh, uh, act as measures of controlling something and in research around the world agroforestry has been focused on what happens when you put uh, pasture or crops right next to trees and have this intercropping sort of thing and the, and there's a lot of fascination with intercropping and how things happen together my bent or as an Australian looking at our degraded agricultural landscape, it doesn't really matter what the researchers are working on. It's whether or not farmers are actually engaged with their landscape and tree growing. So what I've decided and, and spent my life working on and defining agroforestry is the act of planting and growing trees by farmers. Awesome. I'm, not, I'm not saying what they should do, what species, where they put them in any fashion, but uh, in Australia, forestry is traditionally done by government and industrial companies. Mm. Uh this third wave is that agricultural landscape we're talking about. And if farmers don't do anything with trees, we're going to be in more trouble if they don't, than if they do something.
1: Absolutely. Well, to understand, I think, the third wave idea, um, and in order to possibly paint a picture of what a farm looks like that's incorporating trees a bit more, we need to sort of probably jump back a bit with your story, how you came to be, you know, Rowan Reed, you know, child of the forest, if I can impress upon the Game of Thrones fans out there. Um, w- what led you through? Life to where you are now, and to that elusive third wave thinking that I think you 'll talk about well,
0: well the what the wave references to the fact I, I grew up surfing along the coast and uh, yep. the great ocean road uh, right behind the coast is this spectacular forest, the Otway forest. Mm. Um, the part that I was engaged in was uh, red iron bark forests around uh, areas inlet that 's a landscape that 's been burnt, logged. Trashed, weeded. My mum had me out pulling bone seed and stuff in the bush from when I was old enough to pull them out. It's it's not by any stretch of the imagination a pristine environment, and never, and probably hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Probably even when the indigenous landholders were managing it. So I was comfortable with the the dynamics of a forest and the fact that the changes over time. And I use the analogy of the surf which when you read the surf, you look for changes, you understand them. Mm. And when you read and understand a forest, you see that it's not static, that it's variable and changing. And I guess my feeling was if if we understand that it's changing, we then have a responsibility to preempt where it might be going and make some decisions about where we as a community want our forest to go.
2: Very
1: cool.
0: Mm.
2: You actually made a career decision, a career path choice while while you were surfing, right? What happened there?
0: Um, well, you're referring to the fact that I wasn't going to work with government or or industrial it's, it's companies. It's a story you tell in the book, I think,
2: where yeah, you made a, a decision to push, yeah to hmm. to pursue working with farmers rather yeah,
0: than it's, um, with the government. Well, farm, farming's been in our family for a long period of time, and. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's great to have an agricultural heritage here until you start thinking about the impact that agriculture has had in this landscape, uh, not only socially with dispossession of the land from Indigenous people, mm. but also, obviously, the impact on the environment and... I see a lot of people concerned about the environment or blockading the forest and trying to stop logging and stuff like that. And I'm saying, hey, guys, look over there. There's this huge environmental impact that agriculture's had. Mm-hmm. And not many people seem to be jumping up and down about it. Mm-hmm. And I that I just figured that I could go into the conventional forestry line of working, even in the native forest environment, managing the Otway Ranges, which was my, my interest at the time. but. It occurred to me that there were, science would never be actually the primary decision-making route that people would take. It would always be mm. driven by by some preconceived idea about what they wanted that landscape to be. And I didn't s- suspect that I'd have <coughs> much to contribute and certainly as an individual wouldn't be able to change the direction of the management of that forest. Mm. And and this is, I suppose, a little bit controversial. I, d- I don't think logging or even logging would destroy the forest. I mean... <laughs> It's, it's still there, it's been logged in the past, and now it's a national park. Well, cool, it's, you know, haven't destroyed it that much. But in the agricultural landscape, things have really gone astray. So my agricultural history in the family uh, may be some of the impact that we've had as a family over 150 years in the landscape. Uh, in fact, my brother was a farmer, dairy farmer, when I was um, at forestry school, and I met farmers, and they hated forestry because it, you know, stole land for pine plantations or it mm-hmm. clear felled the forest. All those things said... Um, I guess I wanted to, decided that I wanted to make uh, forestry attractive to the farming community mm. because if it wasn't attractive, well, they weren't going to do something and the impact of doing something could be great in that agricultural landscape. So the
2: traditional model of forestry is most Australians would imagine it and probably think of it and maybe not without reason as something that is driven by profits and mm-hmm. single-use, really. You're just planting trees and mm-hmm. you're harvesting them for timber. Yeah. Mm. For a farmer, the type of systems that you describe and the photographs you have in the book mm. don 't look anything like any forestry i 've seen before and i 've actually been to your place and i 've seen mm. what you 're doing there too and it 's not just the aesthetic it 's the uses that you 're getting out of the trees it 's not just timber mm. so what are some of the what, what are some of the other uses <coughs> that farmers what, mm. get out of it besides just harvesting timber
0: yeah I think just on your first point, I find that uh, you know people People do imagine, for, you know, I mentioned forestry and logging, and they've got a picture in their mind of what that's actually going to look like. It's not, not, not very attractive to them and probably not to me as well in terms of what the impact is. But go back 50 years or so, quite recently, all forests were managed for a multiple of purposes. Recreation, water supply, you know, there was logging in the water supply catchments and there still is in a lot of catchments. They they managed the landscape, and I guess we were trained as foresters in that era when multi-purpose management was actually what we imagined the native forest environment would be used for. There'd be lots of competing interests, and you would balance those and make sure that one doesn't trump out the other one, and you get the balance. Uh, But then we decided to divide the landscape up into parcels of land that would be used for one purpose, recreation, water supply, or timber production. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not apologising for the way that we manage our native forest for timber, but you can understand if everything else has been taken out and there's just this small area and they've got to manage that solely for timber, it's going to look like a timber plantation mm-hmm. or, a, or a timber production enterprise, and that's their sole use. So in the agricultural landscape, it's referring to why would a farmer plant a tree for one use? Um, shelter is the key in most agricultural landscapes, shade and shelter for stock particularly from an animal welfare and production point of view, but also for cropping and then soil soil erosion control you've got the clear role of sheltering from the wind and the sun so you design your planting so they deliver that that might account for two or three or even four percent of the landscape to achieve that not much but there's no reason why in doing that paying for the cost of the fence and the trees, you mightn't might plant red iron bark and manage it a little bit because way be, maybe one day people will start understanding that naturally durable timbers are really good things. Mm-hmm. And that species is now in in high demand, whereas 20 years ago it was about the same price as low-value timber. Mm. And so anticipating the future, and I, I say it's like just uh, playing the game, being in the game, mm. and uh, just... Selecting and managing a few trees in that design for timber. Mm. So, as you said, our place, you can't say one tree's just doing one purpose. They're doing everything.
2: Yeah. Mm. And it is a very beautiful landscape too.
0: Yeah, well, I think forestry is incredibly attractive. Mm. <laughs> Even the act of cutting it down a tree and making something out of it can be attractive and tell yeah. a story.
2: Mm. So, so you mentioned um, that uh, having shelterbelt, like pl- you're planting trees which may you, the mm. farmer may eventually harvest for timber. But in the meantime they 're protecting stock from the wind, and you say uh, in the book that a lot of the time that you, you can give up a pretty sizable chunk of a farm without reducing productivity so because the the animals are in a lot mm. less stress. Mm. Um, there was a whole lot of... I, I actually made a list of all the things that you mentioned throughout the book of the, the added benefits, so maybe you can talk to a few
0: of maybe them. Maybe you can list them for me. Well, <laughs> let's, let's see how we go.
2: So, uh, you mentioned that some some um, trees themselves can be used as fodder because when mm. in a dry summer, your grass dies back, mm. but but evergreen mm. trees have to keep photosynthesis. You know, in, in
0: our rangelands, which is a landscape in Australia which hasn't been converted from native vegetation to exotic vegetation Um, farming is basically run on the fodder provided by shrubs and trees Mm -hmm. the further out you go and uh, it was actually my great uncle who was said to be one of the first squatters who determined that saltbush was actually really good for fodder and went out and settled in the Murrumbidgee area as a result so clearly trees produce a fodder but it's some of it's not very good. So if you understand the science mm. behind it, you can actually time your cutting, select the species, and they can get you through those. It's not going to be the sole source of fodder, but they get you mm. through what we call the autumn feed gap, late summer before the mm. rains come, or get you through that winter feed gap when it's a bit cool. And uh, so I could prune prune my um, deciduous trees in late autumn, provide fodder. Uh, the acorns are dropping at that time of year that seems to be having a better impact than I actually anticipated in terms mm-hmm. of fattening up the stock and then in mid-winter you can pretty much cut a lot of s- stuff including the wattles and uh, so we prune those for timber at that time of year so they can get some feed value out of that mm. but understanding it's not it's not good quality stuff all the time so you've got to understand the science and that's where I'm trying yeah. to get landholders to not jump on a bandwagon saying so I'm going to plant trees for fodder it's going to save my farm mm. um, there's a lot of science we can look into. hmm
2: and you also mention, uh, it seems like in all the examples you have, mm. one of the first things that you fence off is the waterways.
0: Yeah.
2: And, mm. and he, uh, one of the big problems we have with algal blooms mm. and loss of topsoil, mm. you know, when we see, mm. we've talked about it on the show before, but when you see rivers um, running, running brown, brown. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's our mm. inheritance of topsoil being washed away. Mm. And oh, often yeah. it's, along with that is um, phosphorus and nitrogen fertilizers, mm. which mm. cause the yeah. algal blooms. You're doing a couple of things there when you're fencing off and, and planting out mm. the waterways, aren't you?
0: Well, the first thing, you know, we're talking about competing land uses. I haven't met a farmer who wouldn't be happy to fence out their waterways if mm. only someone, they're they able to have a, a some value because it's maintenance of those areas. They get wash out during floods and you've got weeds coming up along waterways all the time. Mm-hmm. So the idea of actually saying, well, fence out the waterway, plant uh, plant for conservation, manage for... Biodiversity and shade and shelter, Mm -hmm. and then but build in the option of timber production, and then you know I know some listers and will say you can't cut trees along along waterways, you know. but there is ways to do it selectively. I use a uh, a logging winch that helps me directionally fall the trees. I actually land some of the trees in the creek itself and that provides uh, we don't have beavers in Australia so we've got to do it ourselves. <laughs> Put those little beaver ponds in the creek to slow the flow of the water, create yep. different habitat elements for aquatic life. Mm-hmm. We've got the science around this. Um, we seem to have a fear of using a chainsaw yeah. to create the biodiversity but we there is a way that logging can enhance those waterways mm-hmm. for all those purposes. Yeah, yeah, and if we can do that on the upper reaches, we'll slow the rate at which the water travels. If it slows, uh, flows slower, it carries, it carries less soil, it has less devastating effects, and the kick-on a benefit right downstream will have an impact on the urban communities where water is really valuable, mm. both economically and environmentally.
1: I think it's probably worth clearing up for the listener as well, when you are talking about um, uh, forestry, so... The, the, the average punter out there, and mm. probably us until we got halfway <laughs> through that book, yeah. um, thinks of forestry as one species, same age, grow, 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 mm. grow, grow, mm. chop it all down at once. Up mm. near where I live in the Macedon Ranges, we've got this World War One looking former pine plantations all over the place at the moment. When you're talking about growing mm. for timber production mm. and all these multiple uses, where I think people need to understand this is a successional planted mixed-species forest. What's the rate that you drop... Is that, or is it, you know, say 10% of your trees might be dropped annually, which leaves 90% up and in succession mm. and in complete mm. living action? Is that about right? Yeah, it's, it's,
0: the reason I set up the farm is because it's really hard to communicate if people don't see it. I mean, was it mm. Bob Dylan who didn't participate in an interview because he said, look, if I say the word house, you see a different house than the house I'm seeing? Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit similar to that. And, uh, yeah, Bob. And if I can take farmers to a property and show them And politicians, we've had Greens, politicians, Labor, and Liberal, all visiting our farms in our area to illustrate that that forestry can be something outside. Your idea of what it actually is so you talk about you know i'm not gonna i have i have plantings that are solely one species but there's mm-hmm. a reason for it yeah, yeah. and uh, and there's other areas that i might have gaps when i do my logging or i'll do it selectively and using the creek for example i'm actually in the process now after 30 years taking all the eucalypts out of the creek and turning it into a subtropical rainforest of cabinet timbers right and the reason for that is that Eucalypts are 30 metres tall, cast more shade, they're a greater fire threat and they compete more. But they also... Don't provide the dense shade that you need for an ecological cool water stream. And they're the missing elements we have. You think of platypuses and a lot of aquatic life that I don't understand. Cool water in our agricultural landscape is very rare because we've cleared cleared Mm. all those environments. So if I can create a dense canopy of blackwood and red cedar, you know, tropical and subtropical rainforest species, which all grow quite well on our property, Mm. and then manage them for timber, that's the next generational phase. So it is evolutionary. Um, The example you give of knocking down a pine plantation Uh, I talk about the economics and there's not many farmers who who want to spend 30 years growing trees and then take it all back to what it was and then pass the farm on to their kids as they inherited it they want to pass it on in a better state so we use the act of forestry and planting and managing a forest to lift it to a higher capital value ecological value which is higher and they continually cream off some value which helps pay for and maintain that environment on the property awesome yeah. Cool. So that's, that's the language we use And that's what the pictures are trying to convey Fantastic
1: Triple R is where you are Greening the Apocalypse is the program As we approach the halfway point of the show Tonight's guest is Rowan Reed. He is uh, he's a forester, a farmer University lecturer, uh, a maverick even And uh, we're discussing uh, his life And his book Heartwood So we've been talking, Rowan, about uh, your
2: vision for agroforestry, not just a vision, something that you're very much enacting on your own farm and consulting about on other people's farms and teaching very actively, and you've written this amazing new book. It all sounds, uh, you know, we talk about the multiple benefits that farmers are getting Hmm. when they're planting out their farms in conservation value, uh, in attracting wildlife, in improving conditions for stock, uh, but... It is, nevertheless, a little bit controversial what you're suggesting and outside of the norms of, of both forestry and conventional conservation. That's so, why we like you. Yeah. <laughs> what makes... What, I mean, it sounds so good, but what does make it controversial?
0: Well, the act of cutting down a tree is controversial, particularly if it's native. I think if we, even if we don't discuss remnant mm. native vegetation on farms and what's mm. the best way to help people manage that... If, if we get to... And the older farmers have often told me this. They said, uh, you know, if a koala gets in your tree, they won't let you cut it down. Don't plant native trees. Plant exotics instead and stuff like that. But I'll persist. I'll I'll... I'll manage, design and manage my plantations and I'll celebrate the biodiversity it attracts. Mm. And I will argue that the act of doing that, for example, I cut down a tree recently, a dead one, because it had a reasonable saw log in the bottom that I was going to mill. And um, should I say this? As it hit the ground, a sugar glider came out from under the bark and ran off
1: mm. to another tree.
0: To another tree. Now, sugar, mm. sugar gliders do nest in hollows, but that's during nesting, and the rest of the time they're solitary animals. Mm. It, was, it wasn't a problem. Now, there's two ways to react to a story like that to say, oh no, you shouldn't have cut the trees down, you know, they, they're doing this. What I want people to recognize is that I actually created a habitat for a sugar glider mm-hmm. on my own property in less than 30 years using my own money, mm-hmm. and that my system that I've created which is attractive to hundreds and hundreds of farmers in in areas around the state, mm. would be able to support thousands of different types of wildlife in their environment. Mm. So rather than look at the individual tree or even the individual plot of trees, I want people to look at the agricultural landscape and say, what would it matter if there was a hectare of trees harvested over there if there was 100,000 hectares of mixed species mm. or managed native trees in the landscape? Yeah. Mm. We have... A notion here that wildlife do not need pristine unmanaged forest. I've just been to England and you're from Scotland. Uh, they have a butterfly over there that's now very, very rare. It was called the woodland butterfly and it actually follows the woodsman because it lives off the coppice regrowth. It has that environment and the species that yes. survive only when you've gone through and cut an oak forest. Hmm. Now, There must be, and I don't know my my fauna species and insect species enough, but you think this landscape's been managed by burning for 40,000 years? Mm. It, It has had... It has this... The wildlife we have now is actually adapted and evolved on a managed landscape. Yeah. And if we don't work out how to manage that landscape to support it, we might be in the same situation. We probably already are in the same situation. So let's work with the science and try to develop ways of managing our our planted forests in such ways that they create biodiversity and not be so pinned on what we think as humans must be a
1: pristine environment yeah Mm. i think one of the things i like most about the book is and i recommend it have a read of it it's a great book um i like the fact that whether you, you know obviously it's about agroforestry and it's about all the work that you've done but it's um It really does encourage people to think in a more nuanced and detailed and analytical way it's it's kind of a little bit punk in that regard because it doesn't just take a singular it looks at every argument it it, it's quite willing to look at the past the present the future the the x y and z of everything and actually what one of the things i enjoyed most about it was that third wave thinking why is everything in black and white now and the example you've just given obviously that was a, a, a bit of a rough Hour or so for that sugar glider, but as you say, he was there in the first place because of the work you've mm. done. Mm. Probably countless millions of sugar gliders over the last fifty thousand years or so have been in all sorts of various places because of managed landscape, you know. And that, and that, and if we can start to look at it from that perspective rather than lock everybody out or cut everything down, mm. well, suddenly we look like we're on a track to survive, you know.
0: Yeah, and you know. I, There's so many words, regeneration, restoration, all these re words. And Hmm. to me, there's something embedded in looking back in all of those. And we have to look forward. We've run out of land. Uh, we can't afford to, to to treat land as separate parcels anymore. We need it to be more productive, mm. but also more environmentally sustainable. Clearly, mm. because we're starting to understand the impact of herbicides and chemicals and all these sort of things, we need to find natural pest control systems and learn to understand those. So we need to sort of go forward, and we need to then say, well, okay, if we're if we're planting trees for production, what are some of the compromises? Between production and conservation, mm. and uh, in the book, I try to explore the joint production economic theory and stuff like that to yeah. say that the less the, the system that is no good for anything mm. might be best for everything, in right. the sense that it's it's not producing maximising your wood production, it's not best for conservation, yeah. but because it produces some of each,
1: yeah,
0: will be it'll put, be applied greater in the landscape, yeah, and we have a lot of trouble, you know, with people have. A particular interest it's a, it's a dangerous book to write because there's a risk that no one will buy it because <laughs> the foresters don't like it and you know because I, I do what they consider uneconomical or unproductive systems and stuff like that and i try to tell them well i'm trying to find a way that we can actually produce a resource from a huge landscape and the conservation minded ones probably are reacting a little bit to the fact i'm cutting a few trees down but um, maybe the wider community can start seeing that there's, we have to start having the more difficult debate about how you get joint production off these landscapes. Mm.
1: I'm just thinking in my mind about the uh, Western Victorian landscape and the dry land farming, great big open skies, big plains of wheat or mm. whatever crop they are growing out there. The odd remnant um, red gum scattered through the fields in some places, but really it's just open plains. What would your vision of forestry look like in those areas? What would the landscape look like?
0: Hmm. <laughs> you say, you say vision and i am I'm, I'm not it's not because i'm I'm worried about presenting a vision for someone else's landscapes hmm. um, but the way that I've worked with farmers is is not to preempt the outcomes um, and and this you know many people will be interested in permaculture design, and the reason I like Bill Mollison's work is because The way it should have been used, it shouldn't have actually predetermined where you're going to end up. If you go through a design process and you end up with a monoculture pine plantation, because that's the right thing for that Mm -hmm. landholder and that landscape, you should accept that. Mm -hmm. So what I do is work with farmers through a design process that helps them work out their needs, resources, what their opportunities are, their aspirations and and stuff like that in the family, and we help them get to a point. It won't be the same point that I get to on my property... Mm -hmm. But information science and, and guidance and, and networking and information and markets all direct individuals to different outcomes. And what I really celebrate in our area, down at Dean's Marsh in the Otway area, is uh, I had a, had some researchers there the other day. I just want them to see that the same inputs end up with different outcomes on every farm. Mm. And that diversity is fantastic because diversity provides resilience for wildlife and water and stuff it also means that there's many different species grown so if uh, if the markets change we can adapt as a community to provide different products at different times but it also means that we're learning all the time because there'll be successes and failures with climate change for example i've lost species and i can grow species that i never thought i could be able to grow and Without experimenting and doing different things, we wouldn't be, have that information going in. And now, as a community, we share that knowledge and we're all innovating and su- supporting each other. So, never preempt the outcome. Hmm. I don't have a farm plan because I don't know where I'm going. But I focus on the science and reading the landscape and learning from my experience and then redirecting my Mm -hmm. activities in a certain direction. So I don't get back to your question. There's great opportunities in Western Victoria. The red gum woodlands, uh, the uh, the savannah or the open parkland of, of red gums is unfortunately probably nearing an end in terms of its age anyway. So we need regeneration. Is it regenerating red gum? I'm not sure. The landscape's changed a lot. The water and hydrology's changed and the climate's changed. Maybe the future landscape out there will be something different, Mm. probably native species, but probably more diverse and also managed a little bit different because of the economics of managing that landscape. It doesn't have to be what it was Mm. when we arrived, we being the white ones. Um, in, in 1788, or whatever. So, it could be actually something quite different. It's more productive and more sustainable in, in, for our community. In the next fifty years,
1: so ultimately, I guess the vision you would have is action.
0: Yeah, I just yeah, I want people to make decisions, and I want yeah. I want them to be well-informed decisions, and I want them to take responsibility for their decisions. As a young extension officer, a friend of mine, up in, up he was farming up near Holbrook. He uh, he used to ring up all the time and pester me on the phone. He wanted to grow silky, a fantastic mm. native species, mm. beautiful timber. Milled one out of a backyard in East Melbourne and made some furniture out of it, spectacular. If you want one tree in your backyard in Melbourne, to grow for a table try a silky oak tree oh, I have one so, so, uh, sweet but then, then read the book and learn how to manage it and you'll get a really nice table anyway he wanted to do that so the question obviously is what spacing do I plant the trees at yeah. you know, how do I do that And, and, you know, the kids were crying or something. And and I said, look, just plant them at four-by-four-metre spacing. Stop pestering me with Noel. He's a good friend. And uh, so he planted at four-by-four. Five or six years later, I was up there with a group of farmers. And he said, see, this planting failed. Rowan told me to do (laughs) four-by-four. And and from that date, I've never (laughs) tried to tell people what to do. I want them (laughs) to take responsibility for the decision. So now I concentrate on saying, well, if you do it further apart, these are the implications if you do it closer Mm. these are the implications
1: you make the decision nice (laughs) So, triple r is where you are greening the apocalypse is the program and uh we're talking with rowan reed he's recently released a book seven years in the making or more um it's called heartwood it is the art and science of growing trees for conservation and profit and we have him in the studio we all enjoy the book a great deal Uh, at a certain point you've decided Uh, to begin sharing your knowledge with other farmers and you began the Australian Master Tree Growers Organisation and you began to run courses. There was some resistance (laughs) (laughs) from the university to you teaching farmers um, and you weren't quite sure about how how to conceptualise what you were doing.
2: I quite enjoyed the bit in the book in your story how you you didn't really know the significance of what you were doing teaching farmers, so you just invited an anthropologist <laughs> along for the ride
0: <laughs> to tell you what. Sure. You know, yeah. T- Tim O'Meara was great. He's an anthropologist at yeah. Melbourne University. He was an American guy who's a youngster who was actually helping uh, farmers in, the, in uh, Samoa yeah. actually harvest their shelter belt trees, and he turned into a timber trader for a while because that would be the, better than working as an anthropologist, helping the community mm-hmm. by helping them market their timber. Um, yeah, because I suppose I'm at Melbourne University as an academic and teaching students who are 18 or 20 years old who don't have any land. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, it's it's an interesting si- si- science, but uh, how do you you make an impact by working with the people who make the decisions? And mm-hmm. so the idea of the Australian Master Tree Grower Program purposely calling farmers who do an eight-day course a master tree grower yeah. and that's where some of the controversy came out you know nice god it took me three four years to get my master's you know <laughs> <laughs> what's this guy giving away in eight days for and uh, and stuff but it's it really rang true, I, I took a group of farmers from our area and they paid their own way and came on their, on their own accord over to Uganda and we had 50 Ugandan farmers in this room and uh, I was up there handing out these Master Tree Grower hats on the first day of this this week-long course and I gave them a hat it had Master Tree Grower written on them and I, I tried to explain through interpreters, I just want you to use your head and I want you to bring your knowledge to the game when we started so i'm calling you a master tree grower for now because you know something Mm. but you particularly know what you need and want and i want you to start exploring for this week how to fit it all together so we've been doing the same in australia for 20 for 20 years now there's 2200 master tree grower signs spread around the country and uh and these farmers uh you know It hasn't changed every landscape on every farm, but I think the building of the network and the pride that people get when someone says to them, uh, you can really just do what you want. It's your farm. Mm -hmm. There is no right way to do this. And I visited a property for the fourth or fifth time back in Western Australia just a week or so ago, and it is the most beautiful farm that I've seen with tree growing, and it conveys all the passion of the tree growers. Uh, It has conservation aesthetics, all these aspects to it, and timber or whatever and Mm. and stuff. And I see this person had a confidence to do this and she's done something that no other farm looks like. Mm. And that's, again, that diversity we're talking about. How do you stimulate that? So that's worked extremely well. So
2: planting a tree... Is something you might not get to harvest yourself. In fact, there's a, I can't remember which crop it is you're talking about, but there's a line in your book saying, um, plant it, then find something to distract you (laughs) for 50 years. That's (laughs) like walnuts. Yeah, yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. The the average age of a farmer in Australia, I think, Mm. is late 60s. Mm. Um, What kind of age are the people that you're teaching? Does it, and if it is something like that, that's Mm. a little bit heartbreaking
0: and and uplifting Mm. to think that Mm. they'll be putting that energy in. Yeah, the, um, to grow a black walnut is, mm. a t- a, you know, you can buy the seed from me, it costs you 10 cents or something. Mm-hmm. You put this seed in the ground, and then every uh, couple of years, you look after it, obviously, and you come back and cut a few branches off, and after about 20 years, you might have finished managing it, and then you've just got to wait while it grows, mm. give it space, and it'll, it'll grow a centimetre per year, so it might take 60 years, so... An economist would sit down and work out. So well, that's the
1: trunk, isn't it? Sixty yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: centimeters. Yeah. So economists would say, "Well, how much does it cost you? How much does it cost you to look after year by year?" And they could work out. Well, it's not economic. Mm. I've done my discounted cash flow analysis. Yeah. There's no way that you're going to make a profit from spending ten cents mm. sixty years ago. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that sort of economics doesn't ring true with a farmer, even an older one, mm. who's who who who's. I hesitate because so many of them just want their grandchildren to take over the farm. That is their passion. Mm. And to make the farm attractive enough that their grandchildren will want to carry it on, uh, even if it's not their grandchildren, maybe it's another young farmer. And we hear a lot about it. You know, farmers uh, are, are ageing, uh, they're not very well educated and they haven't got a lot of money. Um, you know, that's, all that's, that's all averaging. But what that says me, it says to me that in the future we're going to have people buying that land is going to become available who are going to possibly have funds through other sources uh, commercial activities or superannuation or something and they're going to have a passion Mm -hmm. so there is no problem with me and a lot of the master tree growers are older farmers who who want to leave a legacy and have figured they've got 20 years left to do something let's Mm -hmm. plant some trees Mm -hmm. so there's no problem when you're talking about generational change because that fits into the notion of what it means to be a family farm in australia and Mm -hmm. right around the world
1: indeed so closer to home for yourself what's what's the otway's agroforestry network yeah, yeah. talk about <laughs> those folks it's
0: um this was a stand really against I, I, I was involved in land care from when it was formed i was in probably one of the first land care groups in was the barland valley farm tree group we were a land care group in 1987 that's mm. what people generally say is that no is the year that the land care started a few years after that in the early 90s a few of the farmers and i got together and we, I said, well, let's set up an agroforestry network, but let's do it a little bit differently. Uh, We're not going to hand any money to farmers for trees and fences, Mm. which has become a little bit of what land care is about. Half of it, you know, people say it's not, but I say, okay, a lot of farmers access land care grants to get trees and fences on their property. The problem with that is someone else decides where the priorities are and what will be planted. Mm. And I wanted the farmer to decide what will be planted and what are the priorities. So what we were going to give them, sounds, sounds funny, we're just going to give them a community of like-minded people who are going to share knowledge and experience. Mm. And, uh, and the way it's developed, we have a peer mentoring program. We use government funds that would otherwise go for trees and fences to pay our trained, experienced tree growers to mentor their neighbours and friends and others to get involved and that could be as simple as someone who's never planted a tree before has got a few hundred trees to plant one of our mentors spends two hours working with them for the as they start and that communication that relationship that develops over that tree planting is there for as long as those people are in the landscape Mm. so when the money runs out or there's you know no funds around they're still talking to each other in the community we call it the uh, intellectual infrastructure the conversation that occurs in a community that will fuel the development and opportunities that come. So the Otway Agroforestry Network has now got 200 members, uh, probably one of the biggest land care groups, particularly if you consider they all pay at least $40 to join. Mm. We run educational events, uh, put an ad in this Friday. We've got a shiitake workshop. Go to dot org.au we run a, we teach farmers how to how to do everything we've got a million drying days wildlife days and various other things and we train our mentors to continually provide support to the members in the in the community and as a result of that I think people join because sure they'd love a cash handout for a tree or fence but mm. they've come to learn that the longevity and support that you get by being in a community of tree growers is much more valuable awesome
1: hey, uh, we've been having a wonderful chat both on air and off air with uh, Rowan Reid, he has recently authored a hell of a good book called Heartwood, The Art and Science of Growing Trees for Conservation and Profit. I'd highly recommend it. Adam, you, you loved it. I mean, the layout's exquisite. It's a very beautiful looking book. Um, you have a gift for storytelling.
2: It reads, You want, I, could, I could sniff Aldo Leopold in it. Who's a you know probably he was writing nearly a century ago. He was a forester, ago, a forester, mm. and also a professor, I think. Yeah, wildlife science professor. Yeah, mm. and what I love about both his writing and yours is that there's mm. a kind of detective novel of nature in there, of observation mm. and um, unlocking the mysteries of nature, and but also being actively involved in its harvest and not seeing that as a mm. contradiction with maintaining. Yeah, maintain yeah. It, which he, is one he of was a cool hunter. Yeah. So, beautiful work. And I actually teared up a little bit when I was reading about you Writing about cation exchange capacity, and I've been <laughs> trying to figure out why for the last five days since I read it. I don't know why, but you did something there. <laughs> it's really screwing <laughs> with me.
1: About what cation, cation exchange? Yeah, it's in about soil.
2: nutrients in the soil. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's about the you know when 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 in you know indigenous people were, lived within a landscape and they harvested from it mm. while taking care of it. And what you're doing is bringing science together with that attitude. And maybe that's what got to
0: me. No, thank you. That's, uh, and, and the reason, I suppose, you know, it's more expensive because it's hard back and, back and full colour, but I want a book that will last as long as the trees we plant, really, and, and pass them on for generations as well. So thank awesome. you.
1: Awesome. Uh, how could people become a master tree grower if they want to quickly get in touch with you? Well, all,
0: yeah, we run courses around the country when we've got funds available, but uh, the best thing people do if they're interested in this whole field is check out our website, www.agroforestry.net.au and Mm agroforestry.org.au One's the not-for-profit group, one's my website which I put as much information, technical stuff up that people can download as possible and uh, that'll tell them where they can get the
1: book but it's available in bookshops as well. Awesome. Thank you very much, Rowan Reid. Jed, thank you as always for panelling like a champion. Katie, so good to see you again. Thank you. I want to talk urban trees one day, Rowan Mm. Reid. Beautiful. That's a great idea. Uh, Adam, we've got something locked in for next week, haven't we? We do. We're going to talk
2: with uh, Catherine Wilson on her book, Tinkering, Australians Reinvent the DIY Culture. I'm looking forward to reading that this week. Indeedy.
1: We're going to have to tear through that one, aren't we? Bushy's my name. We will see you next Tuesday. But until then... Don't get hoisted on your own petard.
0: (laughs) This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.